0: Welcome to Speak Sex. I am your host, Eve Eurydice, and our guest today is Chris Hedges. Uh, Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you. (laughs) Chris is a journalist, a minister, an author, and a television host uh, with RT TV. Um, he's, uh, he has spent two decades, more or less, as a correspondent in Central America, the Middle East, Africa, and the Balkans. Uh, he wrote for the New York Times for 15 years. He's the author of more than a dozen books, best-selling books, including uh, America, the Farewell Tour, great book. War is the Force that Gives Us Meaning, another book I love, which uh, I think is apt. Right now, uh, Empire of illusion, death of the liberal class, um, days of destruction, days of revolt, so Chris, um, you have covered war up close in the Balkans, <laughs> um, and you've written about you know watching your friends, your colleagues um, and just the population you know become into- intoxicated by war, uh, even addicted to war. Uh, To to that experience of war, um, and and become, let's say, be be taken advantage um, by the the nationalist uh, machine (laughs) Um, to kind of like you know enter the 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 rights of war which are the ancient rites of manhood and ad- adulthood, right? And sacrifice uh, lives and, and, and hopes and dreams uh, to this madness, this kind of like collective madness. And here we are. I mean who would have thought it's 2021 we're just coming out of the pandemic uh you know there's a generation a younger generation who probably imagined we're like post war um the, the, you know the entire like uh, globalism advertisement right was that we're going to have global peace because of corporate uh control because it's wars bad for business was like the the promise right and it's pretty extraordinary to hear, like, the voices of the past, you yeah, pulling us back, you know, and, and especially, like, that, that drumming of, of war. Uh, like, we can all feel it, you know. It's, it's almost like the, the call, you know, the call of war is, is coming closer and closer. So I was originally going to talk to you about... Um, eros and thanatos, right, about how war reenacts sex and, and the domination, you know, the instinct to dominate and the instinct to mate, and, um, but I think this is, this is just the moment, you know, where we need your voice, um, and it's, uh, we're meant to be <laughs> um, talking on the day where it looks that war has become official so yeah give us a little bit of your take on what's happening at this moment in the world and in america
1: well as randolph Bourne said war is the health of the state uh so every state especially when it suffers from economic stagnation or political dysfunction uh will reach for war as an antidote i mean in War is a force that gives us meaning. I write about being in Argentina uh, in the weeks before the Falkland War, the, uh, the war with Las Nalvinas, if you speak Spanish. Um, and the Junta was uh, barely clinging to power. There were giant street demonstrations. I was in them. It was the first time I was tear gassed, probably CS gassed. I was blinded. Um, and, uh, and then they invade the, the islands. And they literally were pulling uh, labor leaders who had led a lot of the demonstrations out of jail to go on television. And their faces were still uh, scarred in black and blue. And they were saying, Las Malvinas son Argentinas. And it was a very instructive moment for me. I was very young because it showed me that toxic quality that nationalism has and reminded me of uh, you know, Kafka's metamorphosis, where anybody who spoke with any sanity w- might as well have been a large cockroach. Um, just to even question the virility of the Argentine military and the junta, who went literally overnight from being detested to being lionized, um, uh, was to court violence. Uh, and so I, I learned at a very young age what nationalism does, how seductive it is, and how it is used by those who perpetuate war to entice, especially young men or young people into conflict. Uh, war itself, and I covered a lot of wars, uh, Central America, the Middle East, the uh, uh, war in the former yugoslavia isn't anything like it, it it's sold to us as uh, so once you get into combat the experience uh exposes the lie but by then it's too late uh so yeah we are once again seeing the um uh the kind of rhetoric the demonization of putin without any i was in eastern europe in 1989 i covered the revolutions there was a general consensus among every diplomat or uh, a political figure that I spoke to that if you extended NATO beyond the borders of a unified Germany, which, which uh, Reagan had promised Gorbachev would not be done, you would be antagonizing Moscow uh, and fueling an eventual conflict, which unfortunately has now come to pass. I mean, people forget that there is a missile base. Uh, in Poland that is 100 miles, a NATO missile base that is 100 miles from the Russian border. I mean, would we tolerate this in the United States? Uh, I mean, in the Cuban Missile Crisis, Cuba is 90 miles from the coast of Florida. So, uh, and the the lack of historical perspective, the uh, failure to look at this conflict from the other side, there are no innocents in war, but uh you know the the russians have i think i'm not justifying they haven't by the way sent any troops into the donbass but yet um but uh you know the 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 cat of nationalism and and the flip side of nationalism is always about self-exaltation it's always about elevating ourselves i mean i was listening to npr cnn or something and they were talking about how putin doesn't share our values he doesn't care about democracy and i'm thinking we just spent 20 years savaging the middle east in preemptive war which under post-nuremberg laws is considered a criminal act of aggression it's a war crime uh, so the lack of perspective is typical of uh that uh intoxication of nationalism which uh, destroys any kind of rational Debate—it's emotionally driven. It's not rationally driven, and of course, that unfortunately is coloring what's happening to us today.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a very unreasonable moment. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, we—it look—it it looks. I mean, when you agree with Thomas Friedman in the New York Times, that's when you know. <laughs> you know, it—it it looks like we. Somewhat purposefully, definitely arrogantly and thoughtlessly, but somewhat purposefully, maybe, uh, did not bring Russia into, you know, NATO or an equivalent kind of like strategic alliance. Well, kept it like as an as an out, outsider, right? As the bad guy,
1: right? But the whole the in whole case we needed de- it, <laughs> the whole raison d'etre for NATO was to stop Soviet expansion. So, it's 1989. Right. The right. Soviet Union collapses. And NATO expands.
0: Yeah, NATO should it doesn't it
1: just doesn't make any sense. Itself,
0: and yeah. Most people
1: understood that the Russians, especially under Gorbachev, were quite open to a joint security arrangement. This is the tragedy. But but the reason that tragedy. it expanded was not for national security. No, there are no U.S. troops that are going to be sent to die over the Ukraine fight over the Ukraine. It's because of these billions of dollars that the arms manufacturers were would be able to make if poland the czech republic uh you know romania everybody to join nato they'd have to convert their eastern european block soviet compatible weapons systems which are different caliber a lot of people don't know uh especially on the heavy weapons uh to to uh nato equipment which is i mean i was in poland wow. a couple of years ago and there are billboards uh from raytheon all over the place because of course raytheon is fleecing the polish people probably, with IMF loans so they can refit their military. It'd make any sense wow. unless you're an arms manufacturer. And that's, wow. unfortunately, what drove the policy. And it's also the reason we stayed in Afghanistan, long after everyone knew, and we know from the Afghan papers that were published in the Washington Post that this was true. They all knew the conflict was a quagmire, uh, that, it, that there was no chance that we were going to, under a corrupt regime in Kabul, going to... Uh, dominate the country or control the Taliban. But of course, there were companies making money hand over fist. And and so and and that, unfortunately, that war industry drives so much of our uh, foreign policy and, and, and they need a conflict. And if it's not with Russia, then it'll be with China. I mean, they they need a conflict uh, in order to justify these massive Pentagon budgets, which are used for arms expenditures, most of which we don't need.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And how, do, you know, how do people, uh, I guess, I mean, the only thing to do is speak this, you know, speak this truth again and again, but it's very hard for the average citizen, you know, who has their lives and who just like read headlines to not fall for the mainstream, you know, li- for the mainstream propaganda, because, um, And yes, you're right. It's not just the the military-industrial complex, let's say, that profits from these weapons uh, being used, bought, uh, you know, sold. But also the media, you know, war is great for ratings. I mean, from, like, the Iraq war on, like, being able to watch war live turned out to be, you know, very profitable uh, entertainment. Uh, And it's good destruction for, like, leaders... Like Biden or Johnson or Putin or whoever, who otherwise are failing their people, and it seems like when when the whole system is you know against the average citizen, how does the average you know person resist all this and and stand up and say you know no to war?
1: Well, well, part of the problem is that there isn't uh, a real discussion about these kinds of conflicts. They, the corporate media and, and some of these corporate entities, uh, you know, General Electric are, are fused with the war industry itself. They uh, perpetuate uh, this kind of groupthink by making sure that all their analysts come from the military or the defense industry or the intelligence community uh, and voices like mine. I mean, I experienced this on the inception of the invasion of Iraq. So. I've been the Middle East Bureau Chief for the New York Times. I spent seven years in the Middle East. I speak Arabic. I understood, like most Arabists, that invading Iraq was arguably the worst strategic decision in American history, given what unfolded in the Middle East. But my voice was shut out because I didn't chant uh, with the mainstream. And, And these, quote unquote, experts on Iraq or the Middle East had not a fraction of the experience that I had in the middle east uh but they parroted the dominant narrative and so they were given a platform and their voice was amplified while mine was was silenced virtually yeah
0: Yeah. that's that's exactly what happens yeah the same thing happened you know i mean for me as a greek it was a tremendous shock uh, when suddenly my america you know like the nation of my heart um was bombing a, a neighbor nation, you know, like when, when, you know, Sarajevo, Belgrade, I mean, they're, they're like a, a, you know, a minute away, <laughs> geographically speaking, it's Europe. And the idea that Europe was doing that, that, that America was bombing like European cities, right? And then the, the fracturing of, of that country, and the, the, you know, the the kind of like artificial um, borders that, you know, the, the forcing enemies, in traditional enemies to like co govern and co rule, you know, and, and setting up countries like Kosovo, um, which interestingly, you know, Putin referred to um because it's has not been recognized by the UN yet. So, you know, he he mentioned like American aggression, right, to compare it to Russian aggression. Um, because we are certainly like not the doves that we appear to be. Um, well, M- Marx Marx said that, um, well, I, I read you, quote Marx, <laughs> um, uh, saying that, you know, war disconnects the working class uh, in one country from another. So that, um, and that's, I guess, Rosa Luxemburg, but nationalism is a tool to isolate the people, right? To isolate the working class and betray it because it, this kind of like a dualism of like you're either with us or you you're against us, right? You're either a patriot or a traitor, um, confuses uh, the this hyper nationalism, confuses the working class about what, you know, th- their own, our own interests are. Um, and it feels like, you know, here we are, we're in a moment of like coming out of the pandemic, inflation, um, you know, the great resignation, and how do you kind of like shake everybody back into obedience, you know, to, right, to the fatherland? And war makes the stakes really high, right, when, when people Right, are well, dying. I, mean, so,
1: I mean, this is what Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Leibnick and others understood at the inception of the First World War. The socialists, uh, unfortunately, believed that they could, uh, up until the war began, that they could organize the working class to boycott the war to refuse to fight each other uh, and there was a strong socialist component in france and strong anti war movement in france as well uh, but they underestimated the power of nationalism uh, and so of course luxembourg and Leibniz, who the most of the socialists in the reichstag sell out and vote uh, for the war credits to to support the war under the Kaiser Leipzig and uh, Luxembourg refuse and are imprisoned. prison. And, uh, and then at the end of the war, when people realize that they've been betrayed and that is what war is always about. It's about betrayal of the young by the old betrayal of soldiers uh, by politicians, betrayal oh, yeah. of idealists by cynics. That's what war is about. Uh, and then of course they're assassinated when they rise up against the nascent, uh nazi movement in the form of the fry corps and everything else so uh uh yes that nationalism has a powerful pull because nationalism is at its core it does two things i mean i write about this and war is a force that gives us meaning it uh one uh elevates you uh, uh above the other because the flip side of nationalism is always racism now, you see it the way they speak about putin uh, but that's true in every conflict. Uh, and the other thing it does is that it 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 appears to obliterate the alienation uh, that you feel in a modern society. So suddenly mm. you all feel like you're comrades. Comradeship, and I write a, quite a bit about this, is not friendship. It's mistaken for friendship because comradeship is about conformity. If you don't conform to the crowd, you're not a comrade. Uh, but you you suddenly appear as a unit. And one of the things you'll find with soldiers and Marines after a conflict is that what they miss, and even to an extent I miss it among war correspondents, is that comradeship. And you, you, they seek, uh, soldiers will seek after conflict to recreate it, uh, usually by getting together and drinking. But it, it's just sad and pathetic because it doesn't exist without an existential threat, a real existential threat. That's what uh, creates this a tribal sense of unity uh, in a conflict. But even, I've been victim of it. I've felt it. Uh, and it is very powerful and very seductive. But it is really at its core the opposite of friendship, because in, in comradeship is about sacrifice, self-sacrifice. It's about uh, It's about death. It's about, it's about in many death. ways, worshiping death. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you have somebody who is a friend, you fear for their safety. You mm-hmm. don't want them to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, in that moment, it is you know band of brothers. It's mistaken for what it isn't, mm-hmm. uh, and mm-hmm. so these forces mm-hmm. of nationalism, these forces of comradeship, are very, uh, very overpowering.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what your title says. You know, war is the force that gives us meaning, right? And like, I think that the what you're saying, in its cleanest, like form is that nationalism, uh, this this kind of like false consciousness, makes us actually believe what's at, uh, at, our wor- at worst for us, you know, what's not in our self-interest. It makes us somehow believe that we're more valuable dead <laughs> than alive, that we are of greater, that it would be more worthy for us to lose our life, uh, to, you know, Sadden and hurt our loved ones to, like you know, take away from our mothers their children. um, That that would be more worthy than survival. I mean, you know, that that's kind of like the the ultimate ability of culture to overcome nature, right? Because our natural instinct is to survive no matter what, Um, and that's kind of the apotheosis of like a cultural indoctrination when that's turned around on its head. Uh, But, yeah, it it tells me that we do not live in a rational world, as you said, despite what we've been told by, you know, the digital, (laughs) uh, you know, tech world, uh, by Googlification, you know, now everything can be reduced to algorithms. Well, it seems that these old instincts are much more powerful than, you know, uh, are are kind of like, uh, you know, corporate leaders uh, were willing to admit. And I don't know how far this would would go.
1: I I would say the corporate leaders have very skillfully learned how to manipulate
0: Mm.
1: emotion. So what drives Mm. you into that embrace? It's fear. They make you afraid. And we're just constantly made afraid of something, the war on terror, you know, whatever the latest iteration is communism. uh, You know, so fear is a paralyzing force. And, and, and in essence, those who engage in active uh, prosecutions of war, and you get to the last chapter of my book, which comes from Freud, of course, Eros and Thanatos, Thanatos being the death instinct. That is what war is about. It is about being embraced by the death instinct, which at its beginning, at its inception, looks and feels like love. Right. The very force right. that war destroys. So right. in war, it's about the destruction of all systems that sustain life, not just other human beings, but uh, all social institutions that nurture life. I mean, for instance, at the uh, beginning of the war in Bosnia, the, the uh, Serb gunners on the hill bombed the library and sent, up, sent it up into one of the great libraries of Eastern Europe, centered up in, in uh, flames. Uh, but same it, in Baghdad,
0: a, same in Baghdad, you know, the Baghdad, library, the right? oldest Quran. Yeah. yeah, and the archaeological right. so, museum just looted, plundered. Right.
1: So that's what war does. It, it, mm-hmm. it, you know, environmental, cultural, social, religious, all systems that sustain life. Now, religious institutions often become uh, or lend themselves to war uh, and sacralize war. Uh, I would argue this is heretical, but it's often done. It was certainly done in the wars that I covered in the Middle East and in the former Yugoslavia. Uh, but it does get to that sharp line between Eros, that instinct to preserve, yes, nurture, yes, protect yes, life, yes, yes. and and Thanatos. And of course what you do in war is you turn other human beings into objects. And this is why rape is so common in war uh, it's why when soldiers or troops talk about sex, it's always they equate it with defecation.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, they they teak, ta- talk about it as if it's a form of defecation. Uh, and
0: defecation?
1: It's, yeah, yeah. Is I mean, it's it, the the crude language that's used to describe sex is meant to strip it away of anything but its animalistic quality. Uh, so. Uh, and, and so you you are, you know, uh, turning women and girls into objects. You are turning the enemy into objects. You uh, that objectification of the other is a fundamental part of war, and it's why there's so always so much sexual violence in war.
0: Yeah, there is so much um, sexual uh, objectification, you know, by ourselves as as well, you know, as well as uh, against those that we, you know, turn into our enemy. Um, And what happens to the children and to, you know, it's not just something that happens to one generation, you know, it kind of like seeps into uh, everyone who witnesses it. So, you know, the mothers, the children, you know, the the next generations, it's kind of like a well that gets poisoned. And a lot of these... uh, hatreds you know when when people lose their lives and it seems unfair then it breeds right uh, generations of hatred and it con- the, the conflict just kind of like self-generates um, right well
1: you, you look at rocco milotic who was the bosnian serb general his mm-hmm. father was killed when he was a young boy mm-hmm. by uh by ustasha these were the fascist forces Uh, Out of Croatia, allied Mm -hmm. with the Nazis, Uh, but they had Muslim battalions. His father was killed by a Muslim battalion of Ustasha, executed. And years, decades later, he uh, essentially is executing uh, men and boys in Srebrenica and I don't want to push the psychological element too far, but there's certainly an element of vengeance. Oh, yeah. Uh, of, 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 of,
0: yeah. of yeah.
1: kind of, mm-hmm. uh, an attempt to, uh, uh, carry out acts driven by the trauma that he experienced as a child. So yes, it's, you never shake it. I mean, trauma is not, uh, static, it's dynamic. And of course, having covered war for 20 years, the way it manifests itself in my own life most palpably is at night. I mean, with nightmares, uh, which it's the wrong word for it, because it's really night terrors where you wake up and you're covered with sweat and you, uh, are, sometimes you can't even remember what it was, but what you do feel is that awful fear that, uh, grips you at a moment when you think that you may be killed or you're in mortal danger. Uh, and, uh, and nobody who's been to war can ever escape it. It, it. it carries it with you, carry it with you, and it has to color your own, uh, the way you relate uh, to other people and deal with the world around you. So, uh, yes, you're right. There is a kind of ripple effect, uh, a generational effect from war. And in that sense, that, that trauma is not contained in the moment.
0: Yeah, yeah. And you know, we we have to remember that every action has a reaction, that we're all connected, that we're all, you know, part part of like the mass brain. Like Putin is doing this in response to what he perceives was done to him and so chain, right? So um it's I think it's just tragic that this new generation that, you know, was born without understanding war, except perhaps in video games, you know, may suddenly be exposed to the to the horror of it, because that means we've delayed whatever possibility of like evolution we had out of, you know, patriarchy and and the same kind of like rights of, of, you know, control and domination and thievery and colonizing and all that uh, into something a little more you know, enlightened, enlightened or, or meta, meta.
1: But there is a, so there is a lo, there is a segment of our population that has been to war. I mean, we have an all yeah. volunteer army, but it falls primarily on those who are economically disadvantaged, I think two or three or 4% of the population. And they have been deeply traumatized by their experiences in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, they gravitate to these right-wing militias. They are hired by private contractors. Uh, they are hired to work as corrections officers in prisons. Uh, so that, yeah, that trauma yeah, is yeah. being expressed in very dark ways throughout the society. In the same way, let's go back to World War I. The Fry Corps was used uh, to essentially crush the left when it rose up. Uh, and, and we do see that element. These people, if you look at the storming of the Capitol... At one point, they form a line. Uh, uh, men form a line, and having watched soldiers breach buildings, it was uh, chilling because that they knew what they were doing. They knew how to breach a door.
0: Yeah, uh, they were trained. They right.
1: They were trained. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, you know, again, the ideal of America, and I say that as a first-generation person, I came here when I was 15, when I was about nine, I think. um, I happened to, I was in Athens, my dad had gone to Germany for business, and there was the uprising of the students against the junta in 1973, I think it was, but the point is, uh, the TV didn't work, the phones didn't work. My mom, knowing nothing, said, Go out and find out what's happening. And there are tanks and soldiers in the streets. Um, and it was a life changing experience. Um, it, you know, it made me want to uh, look for the Communist Youth Party, because the Communists had you know, been leading the, the uprising against the, the colonels. Um, But really, in the end, I just wanted to get away. It was too much history. It was too many stories. It was so much, you know, that it was so heavy, that burden of that inheritance. And I felt that by coming all the way to LA, (laughs) you know, the town of like movies and make believe that I would enter a post-historical world, you know, America had never been conquered. You know, America was like this magical other possibility that was not like what we knew in Europe as like the land of our fathers and of all these like stories. It was like lightweight, but somehow you know America with this with this kind of like potentiality, you know, ki- that doesn't meet its potential, which is like what the world hopes for it and wants from it, and instead gets itself right back into that you know gross arena, and and creates trouble and profits from trouble and just you know to me it's like everything that you know america could could have liberated us from and instead it doesn't you know it doesn't it, it will not meet its promise and it's heartbreaking because um, that was our only option really it was like uh, our way out <laughs> i would i um, would
1: argue that the american myth is a lie First of all, the f- people who founded the country were white supremacists. Uh, they uh, did. Uh, America was invaded uh, and it was invaded, yeah, but it was by, invaded U-
0: by like the, you know, the white king, people. the king. And no, wh- the, no, no, so it, theoretically... was invaded, it,
1: it was invaded uh, by Euro-Americans uh, who wiped out Native Americans. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it was invaded. They carried mm-hmm. out an act of genocide that. Destroyed, probably uh, annihilated, about ninety mm-hmm. percent.
0: But one could and- argue, if one wanted, that the kings of Spain and the kings of England and the kings of this, you know, all this, you know, already like uh, poisonous, great and old powers, were making this decision. One could could give like uh, some of of the you know uh, founders that benefit of the doubt. They were rebelling against their own rulers that Um. it
1: was an it was an aristocratic elite Mm -hmm. that wanted control but if you look at the life of washington for instance uh he uh had fought in the indian wars he'd actually fought with the british under braddock and he was ruthless i mean he executed deserters he flogged his men he uh destroyed uh, native american villages Uh, He he expelled the few Blacks that were in the Revolutionary Army because he didn't want them to learn how to uh, bear arms. He was uh, terrible to his own. He he and his wife had 300 slaves. Uh, There's a famous story of one of his wife's servants. She was 20, fleeing north. Uh, He just relentlessly pursued this young woman to try and get her back. Uh, If he found slaves he didn't like, he shipped them off to the sugar plantations in the Caribbean. He was very uh, freely used, the whip. Uh, and, and so uh, Jefferson wasn't any different. In fact, Jefferson had seven children with uh, Sally Hemings, who was his uh, slave, uh, was enslaved, a an enslaved woman. And uh, Martha Washington's, uh, one of her servants was her sister, because uh, as usual, the rape on the part of the white slaveholders was massive. And this uh, the the, her, the they had the same father, and she treat, she enslaved her. I mean, she treated her as a slave. So th- there's a darkness in the American uh, past that is covered up in these high. Oh, yeah, ideas. that's the
0: original sin of America,
1: slavery, slavery and genocide. And mm-hmm. uh, I mean, we created an apartheid state uh, where if you were black, or you were Native American, or you were a woman. Or you were a man without property, you were a second-class citizen. So I think we often get caught up in the rhetoric without looking at the actual foundational beliefs that set the country in motion. You're right, Hollywood is a perfect myth-making machine, uh, but that's what it is. It's a myth, and uh, James Baldwin writes about this continuously. The failure on the part of white Americans to face who they were and where they came from which, as Baldwin writes, sees them confuse ignorance with innocence, creates monsters. And I would argue that our inability to face where we came from, who we are, and what we've done, sees us perpetuating the same kinds of atrocities. I mean, the the history of the American empire, especially since the end of World War II, has been filled with violence and uh, coups and overthrowing governments and assassinations right, yeah. and... It's a very, very dark history, which we mm-hmm. don't talk about, but, mm-hmm. but which uh, I think defines us as a nation. And until we grapple with that definition, uh, we're doomed uh, to repeat it. And of course, the problem is that that ultimately becomes very self-destructive. Uh, and that is it, Thucydides writes about it when the Peloponnesian War, he said the tyranny that Athens imposed on others, it finally imposed on itself. Uh, And that's what's
0: happening. Yes, yes. It's interesting that uh, leaders like Trump and uh, right-wing populists like Tiger Carlson now uh, are, you know, In in a way that that seems almost confounding, are in agreement with what leaders of the left (laughs) um, and you know, let's say, left wing populists have been thinking. You know, and people like you uh, have been discussing uh, about this issue all along about the issue of empire and war. And this seems to be perhaps the first time. in recent in recent years, where the right wing, through its populist movement, is meeting the you know the left, the the uh, the left wing liberals, uh, in agreement against uh, this you know imperial self-destructive instincts. Um, they meet. or they meet on the analysis, not on the solution?
1: It, I mean, my solution is socialism. So those are very different. We may agree on the structural, much of the structural problems, uh, and it's interesting that, you know, for instance, uh, although I am a self-declared socialist, uh, Ron Paul will post my critiques often on his website, who's a libertarian, I'm not a libertarian, uh, so th- there's, there is a convergence on the analysis of some of the problems uh, in the same way that there was a convergence on an analysis of problems in Weimar Germany between the socialists and the fascists, uh, but uh, the, you know that is that that convergence then sees them uh, become mortal enemies when they
0: seek to construct
1: a response.
0: You mean a, a political response? A, yeah, a practical... yeah, because
1: I I am a fierce anti-fascist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you would audit the Pentagon and the Defense Department and they wouldn't? or would Well, not only audit,
1: (laughs) well, it doesn't matter because the Pentagon has escaped being audited for over a decade. I mean, they're beyond control. I would slash the Pentagon budget. It's uh, more than we spend more on the military than the next nine countries, including Russia and China combined. Uh, And this, of course, is another symptom of late empire. Uh, yeah. It's ha- how you destroy uh, an open society. Uh, so I would slash the Pentagon budget by probably three quarters. Yeah. Um. And that that's not something the right wing wants. They deify the military and law enforcement.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, having this idea of America as like uh, the the world order uh, policeman, uh, which made sense in 1945, I guess. But no longer makes sense. It's something that we all have to agree on, you know, and move forward and say this is no longer the case, we no longer want this job, we don't have to have this job, there is nothing to police and just, you know, quit. This was a voluntary <laughs> position and we no longer have a need to go out in the world and tell other countries far flung what to do and how to do it. And, you know, our military should exist only for the basic purposes of the military right, right. But, but, for self-defense. But what, did,
1: but what did it mean to be the world's policeman? We overthrew the leftist government. We can start in Greece. Yes. And fomented a civil war. We That's right. overthrew Mossadegh and Iran. Cyprus. Uh, we still Cyprus still We overthrew Arbenz in Guatemala. Uh, I mean, the, the, we uh, orchestrated the assassination of Patrice Lumumba along with Che. Ah, uh, the world's policeman meant uh, making the world safe for American corporations, right? The under the bullying. name of being a but, but yeah, the world's bully. So uh, even that self-appointed role was fictitious.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it seems that Russia does not want to be out bullied, and that right now, uh, with the rise of uh, Russia and China because of globalization um, and the promise of of the global economy uh, as the promoter of world peace, um, that certainly has backfired and in fact it has um, empowered uh, these two uh, old empires that had been weakened after years of of world wars. and Cold Wars has empowered them to wanna be bullies at the level of America, and this is where we are right now. Um, I think that the aggression has just begun in Ukraine as we speak, Um, in the breakaway uh, enclaves um, with Russian troops in there as peacekeepers. Uh, I don't know, we don't know right now how uh, uh, overwhelming the aggression will be, um, and how far uh, the Russians want to go, I am sure that there is a lot of uh, nostalgia playing into it. It seems like a very emotional issue uh, for Putin and his uh, cadre of of, leader, of aging leaders, um, the idea of um, reuniting the lost glory, something that all countries, including my own, Greece, you know, suffer from, right? This kind of like uh, adoration of what was of the past rather than of what it should be, which is the future. Um, and, uh, you know, c- kind of like bemoaning the breakup of the empire, which is a very familiar uh, note in in history, in the history of patriarchy, for the past, I don't know, <laughs> 6,000 years. Um, so all this, you know, this set of grievances and, and disappointments that, you know, aging men in particular, you know, nourish uh, aging, aging people, yeah. Uh, regrets, o- all of that seems to play into Putin's decision to, you know, not just ratchet up tension, but to actually uh, invade. Um, And I I do want to say that, um, you know, we were threatening sanctions, um, but the only sanction that would make sense for Putin would be uh, stopping the the sale of gas to Europe, and that's not going to happen. Right now, Nord Stream 1 is still providing like 40% of... uh, the gas needs of the industrial engine of Germany uh, through Ukraine, I believe, and it will continue to. Um, and other than that, I don't think that any of the sanctions uh, will work because this is not a, a, a reasonable decision. It's an emotional decision. It's, it's very much a, a kind of like pride. The pride of, of the leader, of the patriarch, um, who has been disrespected you know it feels like a mafia family uh, fight you know like the dawn wants his you know his uh, ring to be kissed basically um and uh, you know, his, wh- what what used to be like he's uh, dependent uh, is showing signs of disobedience and that is just a bad, sets a, a bad example for all the other nations in the Russian sphere of influence. So it has to be dealt with um, in, ma- you know, in mafia family ways, only they have nuclear weapons. Um, so, yeah, I feel that... Um, this has shown kind of like the failure of uh, the the European Union and to to a lesser extent NATO uh, to prevent war, which was you know their their promise, especially the European unions. We also should say that uh, in you know there is a strong anti-war movement in Russia, that this is not about uh, you know the Russian people, but you know their leadership. And uh, this may also be about the Ukrainian leadership. Um, and And their failure to to withdraw from NATO temporarily and put you know put this issue to rest for the moment um, until a change in the conditions uh, would happen, which would happen within a few years, so a lot of male pride and you know it 's ironic I had told you that I wanted to do the episode about um War and 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 sex in the patriarchy and how um, war kind of um, reenacts sex in the patriarchy <laughs> and how war reenacts sex and how the patriarchy conflates sex with war since basically its inception uh, which began with the conflation of like procreative power with procreative domination right uh, so man's instinct to of, for domination has become one in the same with, like, men's instinct to mate um, for the past six, 7,000 years of this particular civilization that we have had. Um, and the, you know, the history of patriarchy kind of, like, continues uh, in the same cliche way, in, in the same sad and disappointing way um, Rather than you know uh, an enlightened way, and it is a dark, it is a dark, um, and bleak day for the for Europe, for sure, to have like the war, the beast of war, uh, uh, unleashed again potentially on our soil. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, thank you. Like the first step is awareness, and letting voices like yours, you know, be heard. <laughs> The next step, hopefully, is resistance, you know, and consciousness, like just being conscious in in how we understand what's going on, uh, rather than remaining unconscious. And then, you know, I hope, I just have hope. (laughs) (laughs) I do. (laughs) Anyway, Chris, um, yes, this was an amazing conversation, which as I knew it would be. And uh, I thank you. For coming yeah. and for, oh, for knowing, knowing so much about this and you know for the clarity of your vision and of your goodness you know your your moral goodness i appreciate it deeply yeah. um so and everyone out there thank you for listening thank you for being with us and until uh next week keep speaking war and sex Could make love incessantly, I would be God.